Hi, I'm Malcolm Duncan. Thanks for joining me for the podcast series Risk Takers, The Life God Intends for You, based on a book by the same name that I wrote in 2013. My prayer is that God will use this podcast series to encourage you, to inspire you, to challenge you, to stretch you, but most of all, to lead you into the life that he has for you. For more information on Risk Takers or other resources, please take a look at my website, malcolmduncan.co.uk, or you can contact me via Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Welcome to episode six of the Risk Takers podcast series with me, Malcolm Duncan. Today, I want to unpack for you the second of the eight risks that we are exploring together as part of this series. Last time, we looked at what it meant to step into the unstoppable story. Today, I want to think with you about what it means to believe a bigger gospel. I'd like to read to you from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through to 8. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we know God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Martin Luther once wrote this, and my apologies for the gendered language. If he has faith, the believer cannot be restrained. He betrays himself. He breaks out. He confesses and teaches this gospel to the people at the risk of life itself. If stepping into the unstoppable story is like stepping off a diving board, then believing a bigger gospel is about signing up for a bigger fight. On the 11th of November 1987, a devastating terrorist bomb exploded in a small town in Northern Ireland called Enniskillen. Just a few moments before the beginning of a service of remembrance for those who had been killed in military conflicts. Eleven people died that day, I remember it well, including a young nurse called Mary Wilson. As she lay dying in the rubble, her father, Gordon Wilson, also covered in rubble, lay close by. He was seriously injured in the blast, but later received... um, medical treatment and made a full recovery. He waited with his daughter as she passed away. A few days later, as he spoke to the press, televisions across the world broadcast his words of forgiveness for the perpetrators of this terrible atrocity. It was a moving and a challenging moment in the history of Northern Ireland. As a result of his response to the attack, The Westminster government of the day established a project in which it selected young people from Northern Ireland and sent them to various parts of the world as what they called young ambassadors. The aims 
were to expose an emerging generation of young women and men to different cultures and at the same time to show the wider world that not everything about the province of Northern Ireland was dark, bleak or bigoted. I was among one of the first handfuls of young people to be selected as an ambassador. I can remember being at home when I got the call to tell me I had been selected. Excitement flooded my head as I heard the news of where I was to be sent. I had thought that I would perhaps go somewhere like England or Scotland or France or Germany. Instead, I was going to Mexico. I was to spend time in an orphanage between Tijuana and Tecate in Baja, California. The orphanage was called Sparrow's Gate and had been set up by a businessman called Dean Tinney. As the government official explained all of this to me, I was getting more and more excited. Then at the end of the conversation, she said that there was just one thing that she needed to make me aware of before I agreed to go on the trip. The orphanage is actually run by evangelical Christians as a mission, she said. I was absolutely speechless. You see, when I had applied to be a young ambassador, I had no Christian understanding whatsoever. I wasn't interested in God or in Christian things. A few weeks after the application had been submitted, however, and a very long time before any interviews, discussions or selection, I had become a Christian. So, according to the paperwork that they had received from me, I wasn't a Christian. I hadn't mentioned my conversion in my interview process either, yet here I was being asked if it was a problem that I would be sent to an evangelical Christian mission to serve. I explained my story. I said it was a blessing and not a problem and put the telephone receiver down. I am sure that you have experienced moments when you knew a bigger plan was being hatched. You knew, that you know the kind of moments that I, I mean. You feel a shiver down your spine or the hairs on the back of your arms stand up or you get goosebumps. I knew that this trip was going to be far more important in my life than I had first thought. God was up to something. We arrived at the orphanage in the early hours of the morning. We'd been picked up at LAX airport in Los Angeles and driven straight to Sparrow's Gate, Mexico. As the sun rose, I have to say I was completely overwhelmed. Around me were dozens and dozens of girls and boys who had been abandoned or whose parents had died. One little guy called Paolo, within days, had attached himself to me and started to call me dad. I was a young man, a new Christian and far from home. I didn't speak Spanish, so I communicated with the children by drawing pictures in the sand. I could feel a volcano of emotion rising in me during my first few days there. Then, one night, just after we had put the children to bed, I went outside into the darkness and wept as I prayed. I can't exactly remember what I prayed, but I clearly remember the sentiment. This is way too big. I didn't sign up for this, Lord. I can't handle all of this sadness and pain and loss. I don't know what to do. And I remember a sense of God speaking back to me, gently and inaudibly, but nevertheless clearly. He said, this is what the gospel is about. That just blew me apart. I couldn't understand it fully at the time, but I do understand it more now. You see, I became a Christian in a culture where the gospel went something like this. Jesus came to pay for your sins. If you do not repent, you will go to hell. So repent by turning from your sins and he will forgive you and save you. And when you die, you will go to heaven. Simple. That was the gospel message that I had heard. But the truth of scripture is that what I had heard was part of the gospel. And my conversion to Christ, vital and central as it was, was a response to the message of Christ. 
the gospel that I had heard was about getting individuals converted. The gospel that I was saying at Spire's Gate was seeing broken lives changed and transformed. Both were being done in the name of Christ. Which was right. Actually, I believe if you think about it, the good old-fashioned gospel is the heart of the message of God's purposes on earth. He has reconciled the world to himself through Christ by dealing with our sin, dismantling our idols, overcoming darkness, destroying the power of evil and giving us hope. In response to that powerful gospel message, the mission of God kicks into our lives and we become as agents of transformation and hope in the world. But to respond to that message of gospel and gospel mission changes everything. Six or seven years after my trip to Mexico, I was studying at a seminary. There were two classes from my seminary days that I am most thankful to God for because they changed my life more than anything else. One was my Greek class, led by a remarkable and godly Swiss theologian called Siegfried Schatzmann. He input into my life incredible things. His introductory Greek class had a profound impact on me, destroying hundreds of bad sermons, upsetting a great deal of my tight and precious theology and hurtling into me, in me into an even deeper, long-lasting love affair with the Bible. The second was led by Peter Davies. Peter is an Old Testament scholar and in his class he introduced us to each book of the Old Testament section by section. He gave us a preview and an outline of every book, stopping to delve into their content more fully there, more fully here on the way. And his studies of the book of Amos changed my life forever and helped me better understand what I had experienced in Mexico and what I was giving my life to. They set me on a course that has shaped everything I do now. I owe much of my ministry and my theological convictions to these two men. Peter explained that the story of Amos was about somebody from the south who comes to prophesy in the north and how he identifies and challenges all of Israel's neighbours and highlights each nation's sins and shortcomings before the Israelites. He starts with the ones that are furthest away and works his way in using a kind of spiritual formation. First Damascus in Amos 1, 3-5, then Gaza in Amos 1, 6-8, then Tyre, verses 9 to 10, then Edom, verses 11 to 12, then Ammon, verses 13 to 15, then Moab in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Amos holds these six godless nations before Israel as he points out their weaknesses, their shortcomings and their failures. Israel must have loved it. Here was God telling them how gloriously bad their neighbours were. Then Amos lifts up Judah, or the two southern tribes of Israel, before the Israelite northerners. Remember, Amos himself is from the south, so the northerners would have loved this. He points out the south's failing to walk with God in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Israel must have been sitting proud at this moment, as they heard a southerner castigating his own people's wickedness and sin. He wasn't finished though. Each of the other nations is, ex is exposed in just a couple of sentences. But the worst and the severest exposure of all is for the northerners themselves. In an unsettling and challenging exposition of justice rhetoric, Amos highlights the failure of the Israelites to be compassionate, to show mercy, to help the poor, to care for the excluded, 
And the list goes on and on and on from chapter 2, verse 6 and following. The pivotal part of Amos's message comes in chapter 5. Here's verses 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I can remember the impact of those words as if it were yesterday. They made sense of the struggles that I'd been having for years about the church and her role in the world. A Christianity that was all about getting people into church had engulfed me. Get them saved, get them into meetings, then get go and get more. The bigger the meeting, the better. The more people you get converted, the better. It was all about conversion. It was not about discipleship or helping people to follow Jesus or be transformed by this gospel or live in the missional purposes of God. Meanwhile, the world could be going to hell on a rowing boat so long as people came to our meetings and made decisions. Do not misunderstand me. I actually believe that conversion is incredibly important. People do need to hear the offer of life in Christ and they need to respond to it. I still believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that our choices and decisions whilst alive impact where we will spend eternity. What I don't accept is that this is the sum total of God's purposes in the world. Amos deeply impacted me because here was a bigger message. Not just one about getting people into meetings, but one about justice and righteousness and changing the world. In fact, Amos makes clear that good meetings without righteous and just living are a fraud. And he clearly states that we would be better off without good meetings if we're not willing to live transformed lives. Amos gave me a bigger framework within which to understand the purposes of God. He showed me that God's purposes are bigger than simply getting people to come to church. If that's true, then the gospel is much bigger than many of us think. Back to Dean Tinney's orphanage in New Me- in, uh, in Mexico. His orphanage and Amos's words were two prongs of a fork that was nudging me towards a different understanding of God's purposes and God's plans in the world. As I have said earlier in this podcast series, Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to change the world. The gospel is much, much bigger than many of us think. What is the gospel? If I asked you to give a summary of the gospel to me, what would it be? Perhaps it would be like the one that I have given you, that Jesus came to save me so that when I die I'll go to heaven. Perhaps it might be something like John Piper's gospel summary. He says this, the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, rose again eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those that believe, only everlasting joy. Or maybe it would be easier to ask you what you think a great summary text for the gospel in the Bible is. What would you choose? Maybe 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 following in the message it says God didn't set us up for an angry rejection but for salvation by our master Jesus Christ he died for us a death that triggered life whether we're awake with the living or asleep with the dead we're alive with him or maybe this one from 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am foremost. Or maybe perhaps the most famous verses in the New Testament. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed God did not send the world, the son into the world so that the world would be condemned but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or maybe 1 Peter 3 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Or 1 John 3 8. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Or Mark 10 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. All of these are central and they're all powerful texts that summarise for us some of the central purposes of God and Christ. Yet we can't take one over the other, can we? If we do understand the gospel, then it must include all of these because they're all part of it. The good news is not just contained in the epistles of the New Testament. It can't be. The good news must also point directly to its source, to Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't just announce good news. Jesus is good news. When the birth of he, Jesus was announced to the shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem, Luke tells us that the angels said, I do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is the Messiah, the Lord. That's Luke 2, 10-11. The Greek word that is translated good news is repeatedly used in the Gospel and in the New Testament. Transliterated into English, it is evangelion. It's the word from which we get words like evangelism, evangelist, evangelistic and evangelical. So whatever the good news is, it is what evangelism is about, what evangelists should announce, what evangelicals should believe and what should be at the heart of all of our evangelistic strategies. Our challenge is that English has so many fewer words for good than Greek. But really, we are talking about what I described in my last episode as good beyond my ability to ever describe or explain news. The centre of this good beyond my ability to ever describe or explain news in the Bible is not Israel, it's not Paul, and it's not Peter, it's Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, described as the four evangelists, because in our Bibles, each of the books that bear their names is introduced as the good news according to tell us not four stories, but four versions of one story. They each tell us the good news of Jesus Christ. The whole of the New Testament pivots around the good news of Jesus Christ. That's hardly a surprise because the reality is that the whole world, the whole of history, revolves around the good news of Jesus Christ. And that good news is Jesus. Who he is, why he came and what he did. The four gospel writers make clear why they have written their accounts of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Luke chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. And at the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, 
John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And through believing, you may have life in his name. It seems abundantly clear that the four gospel writers share one common purpose, expressed in different ways and with different priorities. They all want people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has come to rescue the world, that he has come as our deliverer and as our hope. This word Messiah is a very important one. The Hellenized form of it is um, Christ. He is our Christ. He is our saviour. Matthew, Mark and Luke explicitly state their objective in writing. They also include a story slap bang in the middle of their book that points to Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Messiah. You are the Christ. In Matthew 16, Luke 22 and Mark 8. In fact, in each of those three Gospels, this declaration marks a turning point in the story. It's the moment when the pressure mounts and the cross comes clearly into focus. Every single one of the eight major sermons in the book of Acts points to the Messiahship of Jesus too. Peter declares it on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, at Solomon's portico in Acts 3, in the house of Cornelius in Acts 10. Stephen declares it in his martyrdom in Acts 7. Paul declares it at Pisidia in Acts 13 and at Lystra and Athens in Acts 14 and 17, and at Miletus in Acts 20, and before both Festus and Agrippa in Acts 26. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Saviour, Jesus the Rescuer, Jesus the Liberator, Jesus the Deliverer. The whole New Testament is built around this idea of Christ's lordship, victory and power. Not only does the book of Acts points to this, but Acts also explains the story of the church being birthed through this good news. The letters of Paul, James, Peter, John and Jude all apply this good news and its implication into the various contexts and situations in which they find themselves. Hebrews has at its very centre this good news that can be summed up with three simple English words. Jesus is better. The book of Revelation, a record of John's encounter with God on the island of Patmos, contains letters, seven of them, from the Messiah to the seven churches of Asia Minor and it's full of imagery that points to Jesus as the fulfilment of the hope and the longings of Israel. For me, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the central identity of Jesus, the Son of God, God in human flesh through the Gospels, is that he is the Messiah. Christ clearly understood himself to be his Father's Son, speaking in a language of intimacy and closeness, never before heard by the Jews. His sonship and his messiahship go hand in hand. And the Gospels paint a picture of Jesus who came to do his father's will, who came to set captives free, who came to bring life without question. His divinity is written in the words and between the lines of the Gospel. These truths would be picked up, unpacked and elaborated by the rest of the New Testament. They would dig into who Christ was and why he had come. They would be the threads with which the tapestry of his mission and ministry and the purpose of the church would be woven. Jesus connects the ideas of the Son of God, the Son of Man and the Messiah with himself in ways that would have taken the Jews by surprise. These identities were all important in their scriptures, but they did not necessarily identify them all as one person. Yet Jesus ties all of these together in himself. Not only that, he clearly understands his own divinity, 
and that is linked to the astounding tapestry of who he is. His claims are bold, audacious and dangerous. They are what ultimately has him killed on the cross. A glimpse at any of the Gospels shows us that his forgiveness of sins, his overruling of the petty additions to Sabbath law, his interferences um, with the religious systems of Israel that had departed so much from what God wanted, his inferences around his divinity by accepting worship, liking himself to the prophetic promises of the Jewish scriptures, speaking of God of his father intimately, controlling nature, commanding the demonic, defeating death, challenging the religious authorities and claiming supremacy over all things. All of this points to his understanding that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he is divine. Yet in all of it, it is his claim to be the Messiah that is the most explosive for his earthly context and for ours. Paul's definition of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 is vital if we're to understand why Jesus came. He came to deal with our sin. He came to die for our sin. He came to rise again for our sin. Paul says in that phrase that I read at the beginning of the episode, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. That phrase tells us that what he is sharing with the Corinthians is incredibly important. Some would say he is sharing the apostolic gospel. In other words, this is the nub of who Jesus is and why he came. So what does Paul say is important? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he died and was buried. That he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to the twelve. So there's no way we can avoid the reality that Jesus came to die. His death on the cross was and is the beating heart of his ministry. He will, we will later discover that it is in his death that sin and Satan is to, are defeated, that idols are overthrown, that a new kingdom becomes possible, that forgiveness is offered, that transformation takes place in our hearts. All of this is lived out in response to the gospel. Jesus' death is an atoning sacrifice for our sins that, prays, that pays the price we owed. It satisfies the demands of a just and a holy God. It absorbs our guilt. It carries our shame. It fulfills the right and the just demands of God. Christ becomes sin for us so that we might, through him, become the righteousness of God. God's wrath is poured out on him so that we might be made holy, blameless and righteous. Yet Christ's death only makes sense if we understand other aspects of his ministry, not least his resurrection. He came to die and then to live. The resurrection of Christ is vital if we are to understand him because through his death we're given life and through his resurrection we are given hope that our death isn't the end. His death atones for our sin and his resurrection assures us of our victory. This isn't the end of things though. Paul repeatedly uses the phrase in accordance with the scriptures. We can't understand the ministry of Jesus and the significance of his death and resurrection without understanding the context of his life. In order to understand that, Paul brings us back to this fundamental reality. Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. In other words, to understand why Jesus came, we must understand the promises that he fulfilled. That brings us right back to the question of his messiahship. Understanding this lies at the heart of understanding everything else. King Jesus was the messiah that the Jews longed for. They had been promised someone would come to set them free from their oppressors, from their controllers and from their manipulators. And by the time Jesus was born, 
The Jews had been living under the burden of Roman occupation for decades and decades. We must never forget, however, that they had a deep and a painful history of oppression and exile. They longed for a saviour, a deliverer, a liberator. To them, the Messiah would be a new king. He would bring hope and freedom. So when Jesus came as the Messiah and the Jews heard the word Messiah, they thought anointed and chosen king, liberator, freedom announcer, strong ruler, restorer, hope giver. I could go on, but you know what I mean. If you don't, Jesus' own announcement of his purposes in Luke 4 will help you. Listen to this. Luke 4 verses 14 to 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to deal with sin he came to deal with oppression he came to deal with pain he came to deal with loss he came to deal with the idea that one human could be less than another not in the ways that Jews thought by being violent or aggressively driving out their oppressors but by setting us free from sin he came to fulfill and complete all the longings and the desires and promises of the old testament for Israel and the world in effect, he became the prototype of Israel, fulfilling all the demands and requirements of God set out in the Old Testament. His arrival, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his gift of the Spirit, his eternal intercession, his promised return are all vitally important. In short, he is King Jesus, but he is not simply King of Israel. He is King of the world. In coming, he ushered in a kingdom, his kingdom, that will spread throughout the planet and his power is transforming the universe. King Jesus came to transform the world. The scope of his kingship is much more extensive than the Jews thought. They wanted a deliverer from themselves. God sent a deliverer for all who will turn to him. His model of kingship is different from what they expected. They wanted a warrior, but he's a servant. The method of his kingship was different from what they expected. They wanted one who would destroy their enemies, but he died on a cross in front of their enemies. He was the king they needed, but he is also the king that the world desperately needs. He came as a king, not just to rescue Israel, but also to rescue and to redeem the world. Christ didn't just come to get us to heaven. He came to transform the earth. His whole life and ministry is of the utmost importance. The good news cannot therefore be condensed down to something like give your life to Jesus so that when you die, you go to heaven. That's part of his message, but no means all of it. Instead, we need to understand what Christ's coming changes. As Karl Barth argued, the incarnation is like an atomic bomb dropped on the playground of theology. In his coming, Christ has established an unshakable and an unstoppable kingdom. 
The early church knew it. And their invitation was not some kind of weak and half-hearted proclamation of Jesus' life. Instead, it was a bold, challenging and pretty confrontational announcement. Jesus is Lord. For the Jews, that meant Jesus is Lord and your structures and your hierarchies and sacrifices are not. For the Gentiles and the Romans and the rest of the world, it means Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Or Jesus is Lord and whoever thinks that they are ultimately all-powerful is not. The early church knew exactly what it meant to surrender to Jesus' lordship. And that's the risk. To step into a bigger gospel is to believe that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day. But it's also to give our lives to proclaiming that message and living out the missional purposes of God. God's purpose through the gospel sets us free from sin and enables us to become partners with him in the greatest um plan of all time the transformation of every part of the planet how have we domesticated this good news what is the most revolutionary world-changing news has become nothing more than an hour-long service on a sunday morning with the occasional midweek commitment it couldn't be further from what god wants the risk of believing a bigger gospel is that jesus demands not just a portion of us but all of us his lordship is clear his victory is secure The breadth of his visible reign will one day sweep the planet, just as the breadth of his invisible reign does now. He invites us to be part of his army, servants in his cause and friends in his fight. The invitation isn't for the faint-hearted. It demands change at the most fundamental level of our lives. It alters our perception of the world. It changes our understanding of ourselves. His call is not to build nice churches, enjoy nice services and learn the occasional new worship song. To make that mistake is to follow in the footsteps of the people to whom Amos spoke. Nor is Jesus called to simply get people to pray a prayer and then carry on with their lives as before, but with a bit of religious observance thrown in. To make that mistake is to fall into the trap that I was confronted with when I saw the reality of ministry at Sparrow's Gate. Following is what we are called to do. Earlier, I argued that the heart of Matthew, Mark and Luke's gospel is their confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Closely related to that confession in each of the cases is the call of Jesus to his first disciples. If you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. If that sounds off-putting, then don't be surprised. It was off-putting when they heard it too. In John 6, we witness a moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus that's full of reality and depth and sorrow. He's explained to those listening to him, that his way is hard. It involves suffering, rejection and struggle. And here's how those who heard him respond Respond in verses 66 to 69. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I have some anxiety about the Gospels that I hear being preached around me today. Let me name just three of them. Firstly, removing the offence of the cross. Some preachers invite people to become little more than social or political activists. They promise that we can change the world if we try hard enough, work hard enough, speak up loud enough. They tell us to build schools, run youth centres and be kind. That will never change the world. This is nothing more than a glorified social action plan. 
It claims that we just need to work together and we'll change the world. We can do it at chance. But that just isn't true. Don't misunderstand me. We must build schools, stand up and get involved in politics, challenge structures, be willing to get involved in our communities and in our world. In fact, in my book, Kingdom Come, I explore some of that. We must work alongside others from different faiths and backgrounds and none. There are many things that we can and we should do together. My anxiety isn't about getting involved. My concern is that we should do this as a consequence of the Lordship of Christ without hiding that Lordship. The source of change in our society is not us, it is him. When we're bold enough to say that, we will know what it is to carry a cross. The idea of God and faith may be popular in many of our nations, but the centrality of Jesus as the unique and only way to God is not. The defective gospel that I'm talking about here removes the cross because of its offence. We can't deny Jesus' centrality. Try as we might, our social and political involvement isn't enough. There's still a cross to carry. We can't remove the inconvenience of the cross. Others invite people to come to Jesus and be healed or come to Jesus and be wealthy or come to Jesus and be blessed. Something called the um, prosperity gospel. They suggest that you'll never go through hardship, never go through pain, never go through struggle. It breeds nothing more than a generation of spiritually materialistic and self-absorbed believers who have forgotten the call of Abraham that we are blessed to be a blessing. This gospel, this prosperity gospel removes inconvenience, it removes struggle, it removes sorrow and it removes pain. God doesn't promise us an easy life. He promises that as we walk through life with its joys and its sorrows, he will walk through it with us. When we face shadows, and we surely will face shadows, we're reminded that they only appear where light is. This gospel is an easy fraud that doesn't work. And then there are those that remove the need for cross-bearing. A gospel that tells us that we should repent so that when we die we go to heaven. This is perhaps the most pernicious of all. Because this gospel removes the need to carry the gospel in the world. Remo removes the call to carry our cross. If it were true, we'd be better off getting converted and dying and going straight to heaven. It ignores the call of the cross to be involved in the changing world. It reduces the message of Christ to a prayer at the end of a 20-minute sermon. It privatises a message that is supposed to change the world, turning it into a message that simply changes me. It focuses on my personal sin and it ignores structural sin. It presents a Jesus who's able to change me, but not able to change society. It portrays a God who's interested in making friends, but not interested in bringing justice. Not only that, it also presents a form of discipleship and holiness and worship, which is shallow, self-centered and boring, monotonous and dull. It is stripping churches of relevance, denuding Christians of an understanding of the call and the identity that empowers us to stand in every walk of life and show that Christ is alive and able to change society. It runs away from the pain of the world under the pious guise of devotion, and it locks itself in a world of trite lyrics, simplified thinking, and separatism. And it does all of this in the name of truth. It's irrelevant, and it will die. Believe a bigger gospel. Christ calls us to believe in the power of his cross to defeat sin, to believe in the power of his resurrection to bring victory to believe that we are called to declare his lordship and messiahship into every aspect of society. The gospel sets us free and draws us into the mission of God and Christ calls us to carry a cross. He calls us to turn our back on the world as we once knew it and to engage in the world that he is making. 
His demands are total and his lordship unquestionable. He is changing the world. The question is whether I have the courage to join him in his mission. Whether I say yes to him or not makes no difference at all to his power, his authority and his victory. He secured these in his life and ministry and they won't change. I'm invited to join him though, to throw aside the shabby garments of wrong gospels, to drop the velvet-covered crosses that are built for my convenience. I'm invited to risk everything, to abandon everything, to give up everything and follow him. It's all or nothing. He cannot and will not accept second or third place in my life. Will you, will I, risk everything for the one who risked everything for us? Yes or no?